0: Good morning. Welcome to our weekly Bible talk. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, I woke up this morning at 3 and couldn't uh, get back to sleep. And what is it? It's uh, 9.15 now. Uh, So I'm not feeling entirely awake. I'm feeling like my brain needs uh, some rest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do our Bible reading. And if it seems semi-incoherent or something like that, that's the reason why. Uh, You know, all of us from time to time don't sleep real well. And for whatever reason... I can fall asleep at the drop of a hat, but then uh, often in the middle of the night I'll wake up and have a hard time falling back asleep. But I don't, it's not because I'm worrying about anything, I think it's just the oh, way my mind's wired or something like that. Uh, so like I said, I've been up for several hours now, didn't get a lot of sleep last night, um, and after this I think I'm going to run home and take a little nap. But here we are, we're going to talk about God's Word, we're in Exodus chapter 12. Like I said last week, this event in Exodus 12 is one of the big events in the entire storyline of the Bible, the Passover. This in part marks the transition in the nation of Israel from a group of sort of Tribes and clans to all of a sudden a nation. That's basically what's going on in the first half of the book of Exodus. They're transitioning from, uh, you remember when you were in elementary school and you learned about the different American Indian tribes that were scattered all over North America. You know, you got your Sioux and your Cherokee and your Iroquois, and they're, they're all over the place, but there really wasn't any organization or anything like that. So, also, before the Exodus, that's kind of how the Hebrews were. You know, there were the Levites and the uh, Reubenites and so forth, but they were all scattered and there really wasn't any organization no no central leadership um, after this event things will be far more organized like a nation and things the, the pieces will be put in place for the king to show up on the scene now that king's not going to come for another uh, four hundred years or so that's you know Saul but a, at least the uh, structure is there for uh, that to take place now like we talked about last week the passover festival, the Passover feast itself, uh, was to involve several elements. There's going to be a lamb, there's bitter herbs, there's unleavened bread. They're to eat it in haste, remember that with their their, uh, sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand, that sort of thing. Uh, And this particular ceremony was designed to be repeated every single year in the life of the people of Israel as a reminder of what God did for them for their redemption. It's similar to the way in which we observe the Lord's Supper. Now the difference is the Passover was only celebrated once a year. Uh, this, the, past, the, the Lord's Supper, uh, different churches do it differently. We happen to do it once a month here. I've heard of churches that do it every single week. There are other churches that do it once a quarter. Uh, I know that there's one guy that argues that we should do it once a year because it corresponds with Passover. Uh, but churches differ on how often they do the Lord's Supper, whereas Passover was only ever once a year. Last week we concluded in verse 20, uh, talking about the unleavened bread. Uh, today, Lord willing, we're going to go from 21 on to 32. And again, hopefully my mind will stay semi-coherent and I can make some comments that uh, are helpful and that help us understand what God is saying to us through this passage today. Let me pray for help and then we'll dive into God's word. Pray, pray with me. God in heaven, you are sovereign over all things. You caused the rain to fall, the sun to rise, the wind to blow. Uh, And Lord, you and your providence sometimes give us uh, rough nights of sleep. So Lord, please help me. You know I'm tired. Uh, Please give me clarity of thought, energy, uh, the wherewithal to make comments that really bring out the meaning and the intent of this passage. Please help us to hear your voice speaking to us through this passage. Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And we pray that that would take place now as we dive into Jesus' word. Give us repentance, give us faith, give us mind renewal. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin in verse 21. Uh, like I've done in previous Bible talks, I think I'm going to read just a few verses, make some comments, read a few more verses, and we'll go that way. Verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pause there. You might wonder, where did these elders come from? Uh, this seems to be just sort of a like a tribal custom. Uh, there's no previous scripture ordaining these elders. It's different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we've got uh, exact parameters, what the elders are to be and to do. You know, you get 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications of a church elder, that sort of thing. Uh, this seems to be more different. These were more almost like tribal chiefs or something like that. Uh, but Moses summons them all and said to them, go select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Uh, we won't talk more about that, but like we saw last week, they were to take this spotless, pure lamb, a white lamb without any bones broken, kill it at twilight and then apply the blood to the doorposts of their house and the lintel, and those houses where the blood was applied, the angel of death would pass over them, hence the name Passover, and not kill the firstborn son." Verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop, like I talked about last week. This was this like long plant, um, I guess it's like marjoram, I don't really know what marjoram is, but they say that in, if you look this up in Bible encyclopedias, that's what they say it's similar to. Uh, apparently long, sort of stringy uh, uh, branches, and you could use it like a paintbrush to paint the blood on your doorpost and lintel. Verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two, two doorposts uh, with the blood that is in the basin none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning so a very serious situation here and i want you to try to imagine what it would have been like waiting through that night uh you know if you ever been in a situation where you've uh been informed do not go outside you know maybe there's this just horrific storm coming you know hurricane coming or something like that and they tell you uh you know from from the top down you know maybe it's the the mayor of the town do not go outside and it's a little bit creepy it's a little bit like oh uh, th- th- you know this is not an ordinary day combine that with the promise that the firstborn child in each family is going to be killed uh that's not covered by the blood even further scary. Uh, add to that, and I know that this is portrayed in some of our movies, that throughout the night there were probably screams taking place when a mother, a father discovered that their firstborn son was dead. That would have been horrifying. Uh, you know, as a parent, there's hardly anything, if anything, that you love more than your children. Like I've talked before, uh, when my kids came along, there was something about me that just said, I would gladly die to protect these children. I think that's just from you know, the fact that we're made in the image of God, that doesn't show you anything special about me. You know, Pretty much every parent that I've ever encountered has said the same thing. But take that sort of natural instinct and combine it with the idea uh, that all of a sudden I'm discovering that my child is dead. It's a horrifying thought. You know, at maybe uh, 5 in the evening he was healthy and well and happy and you know, ate plenty of pancakes for dinner and then all of a sudden I discover him at 11 and he's stone cold dead. Horrifying thought. But that's the sort of thing that would have taken place here. Now, it's interesting to ponder if this is taking place throughout the entirety of Egypt, and Egypt's a fairly big land. Uh, did the message get out to the entirety of Egypt, put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel? I kind of doubt it. I'm highly skeptical. Um, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of today. the The message of the gospel is called to go to the ends of the earth we're we're called to make disciples of all nations we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel and yet those nations that don't get the gospel if they die in their sins they are still eternally lost I think it's analogous to that, uh, that if the message didn't get out, these poor firstborn children would have been killed, and they wouldn't even have known what had happened, You know what in the world was going on. And I think it emphasizes the importance of communicating the gospel message because God, uh, he, he, I know it sounds harsh, but understood theologically, it's just. He does punish evildoers, he does punish the wicked, even when they don't have any access to the gospel. Uh, again, it highlights the importance of global missions. Let's keep going. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now you may have noticed, and I brought this up last week, at the beginning of the verse it says the Lord will pass through and strike. Later on it says the destroyer will pass through and strike. I think later on it's even called the angel of death will pass through and and destroy. So which is it? Is it the Lord or is it the destroyer? Is it the Lord or is it the angel of death? Is it possible that it's both? This time I won't develop this too far, especially since my mind's not uh, working as quickly as as normal, I I can tell. Um, But sometime I'd encourage you to trace throughout the New Testament, or not not the New Testament, the Old Testament, the character of the angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel of the Lord is an angel, but at the same time is considered the Lord. It seems to be almost a manifestation of the Lord incarnate. Uh, incarnate's maybe the wrong word, but, but he, he hasn't taken on flesh, but a but a corporeal appearance of the, uh, the the Lord. And many theologians throughout church history have seen these as pre-incarnate uh, appearances of Jesus, which is kind of fascinating to think through. Um, let me show you one quick thing. Go with me to the book of Jude, quickly. Book of Jude, uh, it's toward the back of the Bible. First Peter, Second Peter, 3 John, Jude. Uh, you are looking at Jude? Let me see if I can find it real quick. <laughs> Where it talks about, yeah, there it is. Y'all there, Jude? Check out Jude uh, verse 5. Jude only has one chapter. And when a book of the Bible only has one chapter, you're not supposed to say Jude 1, but I think y'all know what I'm talking about. Jude verse 5. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Isn't that peculiar? Look at it again. It it doesn't say the Lord, it doesn't say God, it says Jesus. He both saved the people out of Egypt and destroyed those who did not believe. Now the destroying there is almost certainly referring to killing them in the wilderness as they wandered around, but if Jesus is the one redeeming them out of Egypt and if Jesus is the one killing the Israelites in the wilderness why couldn't it also be Jesus being the one slaying the firstborn? Now if that's the case, you can go back to Exodus by the way, if that's the case it does sort of give us a different picture of Jesus than we're accustomed to thinking. Uh, A lot of us and truth be told, this often comes from things like flannel graph stories, children's Bibles. We tend to have a very sort of soft, uh, cuddly view of Jesus. And let me be careful here. Jesus is incredibly loving toward his people, toward those who repent and trust in him. He is a loving shepherd. He carries his sheep in his arms, like Isaiah talks about, uh, toward those who are his people. Uh, but toward those who rebel, he is a terrifying enemy. Uh, he slays them in his wrath. And I think we see both of these in the book of Revelation. He's both the lion, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's going around slaying, uh, and the lamb who was slain, who shed his blood to save his people from their sins. And I think you see sort of hints of that both here in the book of Exodus. He will save those who trust in him and that trust is evidenced by the fact that they put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel Uh, but also uh, he will destroy those who rebel against him and it's a a warning in a way to us today if we will not turn from our sin and embrace the Lord Jesus we will be destroyed uh, in the wrath to come. A day of wrath is coming, a day of judgment is coming. Either you will die and stand before the Lord or Jesus will come back but either way if your hope is not entirely in the Lord Jesus you will not meet him as the loving cuddly shepherd of our children's Bibles but instead you will meet him as the terrifying warrior of the book of Revelation. And that is a horrifying experience that's that's too scary for words. Uh, So repent and believe on Jesus right now. Something else I want you to notice: notice the way in which the relative righteousness of the people had zero to do with whether or not their children were spared or not. Um, it's really only one thing that determined whether they were spared: it was the presence of the blood. Uh, these people could have been the most uh, outwardly righteous, moral, law-keeping people on the planet. Uh, you know, you can picture some guy. You know, he's, he's uh, you know he's kept all the Ten Commandments perfectly. Uh, he's, he's loved his neighbor as you know he's loved himself, and yet for one reason or another, he didn't put the blood on his doorpost. Maybe he didn't think he needed to because he was so righteous. It didn't matter. The only distinguishing factor that distinguished whether they were slain or spared was the application of the blood. Now can you see where I'm going there? It's the same idea in the gospel. The only thing that distinguishes whether we are saved or lost, whether we are redeemed or uh, condemned is the presence of Jesus' blood. Uh, You could be as righteous as the day is long, but if the blood has not been applied to your soul you will die in your sins. Simultaneously, You've been as wicked as the uh, worst sinner on the face of the earth, uh, as wicked as Manasseh, as wicked as the thief on the cross. But if the blood is applied to your soul, you will be saved and welcomed into heaven. So I stress again, has the blood been applied to your life? Uh, Jesus shed his blood and he offers to give it to you freely as a a gift of grace. All you need to do is call upon his name. Uh, Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned and, uh, and rebelled against you. I know I've offended you in a wide variety of ways. I deserve your everlasting wrath and yet you're offering your blood to me as a free gift please apply that to my life please save me from the judgment my sins deserve Uh, if you express something like that with true faith today you will be immediately saved regardless of your lack of good works or regardless of all of your good works let me keep going uh, verse 23: The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not and, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. Uh, I again mentioned this last week, but the idea was for this. Uh, Ritual, this ceremony to be repeated every year, uh, generation after generation, and through that, the knowledge of God to be passed through families to the next generation. Uh, if, again, for the sake of time, maybe I won't sort of remind us of the importance of what's called family religion. Um, that's an old term, but that's really an appropriate term. You've got, uh, you know, your Christian gathering on Sunday, you know, your church gathering, hopefully you're all plugged into a good local church, if not Trinity, some other good church where they preach the gospel, teach the Bible. But in addition to that there's what's called family religion what you do around the household, whether you pray before meals, whether you have like family Bible reading at night, maybe family devotions in the morning, those sorts of things. And those are extraordinarily vital in communicating the gospel to the next generation. Uh, You know, the church on its own exclusively can't do it. If, If you're, and just think about this realistically, you know, one church service, let's say it's a good long church service and it's an hour and a half. If you're doing that once a week, compare that to all the rest of the week. You know, you're watching TV, you're going to school, you're playing, you know, video games on Facebook. One and a half hours of a church service is not going to counteract all of the worldliness that we imbibe through uh, just living in the world, breathing the world's air uh, we need this family religion to be strong and hearty if we want to see our children and our grandchildren follow the Lord and I do, I'm sad to say it, but I think that this is part of why we see increasing numbers of young people falling away they're relying too much on the local church, they're thinking oh the Sunday school teachers, the pastor, he's going to uh, disciple my kids uh, when in reality that is so short-sighted uh, if these things are not practiced and talked about you know, if you're not praying with your family on a regular basis, don't be surprised if your your kids have no real interest in this, uh, a one and a half hour church service once a week's not gonna not gonna get it done. Anyway, let's come back to verse 26. And when your children say to you, "What do you mean by this service?" Pause there. It's kind of an interesting concept. I do think God has made children inquisitive on purpose, in part, so that we can give them Bible answers. I mean, I think a lot of us fail here because we don't give them Bible answers. We just give them kind of simplistic ones. Or we tell them, uh, you know, don't ask so many questions, uh, Sonny. Uh, instead, take those questions as opportunities to talk about the Lord. When they ask you, why do we go to church every Sunday? When they ask you, why do we pray before meals every, you know, three times a day? Or, you know, probably not, most of you are probably not home for lunch, but why do we pray, for, pray before meals from time to time? Uh, why, why is it that you, Dad, read the Bible in the mornings? You have a wonderful opportunity to talk about the reason for the hope that's within us. Verse 27, you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now did you notice the response? And it's interesting that the death of the firstborn has, hasn't taken place yet. They hear all of this, they get the instructions and respond in worship. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because they believe that things are going to take place. Now I remind you that they've already seen nine rather horrifying plagues. Uh, you know the plagues of darkness and gnats and frogs and flies and all of that. Uh, so th- this isn't you know, totally out of thin air, but the, the fact that they're bowing in worship is indicative of the fact that they actually believe uh, the promises of Moses that if the blood's not applied they're going to die verse twenty eight then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did let's pick up in verse twenty nine let's and we're going to wrap up with this but here's the here's the great what's it called the great plague uh, the, the the one that they're all driving to the one that the Lord has predicted several times. you go back to the very beginning of the book of exodus, and what did what did Moses say to uh Pharaoh Pharaoh, let my Son, go. Talking about the nation of Israel. If you won't let my son go, I'm going to kill your son. Uh, That was said a a considerable while ago in Scripture. Uh, Here's the fulfillment of that. Verse 29, "...at midnight." the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now I think the fact that it's at midnight makes it even creepier. Uh, you know, the time when most people are uh, typically asleep. You know, but Even in, you know, back in those days, I know that schedules were a little bit different, but it was very unusual to be still awake at midnight. But at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. A couple of things there that might grab your attention you'll notice that he struck the first of the livestock uh again we're not used to seeing that if if again our understanding of exodus comes from the movies and uh the prince of egypt and whatnot we're not typically uh seeing the animals dropping dead but evidently they too were killed in this plague uh showing how thorough going it was and and see in this the discriminating hand of god uh you know it's not like all the livestock died only the firstborn, which you know, tells you how crazy it is to think that this was some sort of virus or something like that. Additionally though I want you to think about that little detail about the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. That's fascinating to think about because almost certainly the guy in the dungeon is not going to have the ability to put blood on the doorposts of his house and on his lintel. Uh, or you, you know what I meant. Uh, you know, If you're chained up somewhere like Joseph was in the dungeon, uh, you're not going to have access to a little lamb, you're not going to have access to hyssop. Uh, so does he just die in his sins? Evidently. Uh, But again, it's a reminder of two things. First, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God is under no obligation to provide us with salvation. If He provides us with a Savior at all, it's only because of His pure grace. Uh, And additionally, God is God and we are not. And we are not to Question his ways. We're not to tell him what to do. We're not to uh, say, God, this is unfair. God defines for us what is fair. And like Paul talks about in Romans nine, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You know, when you find these things kind of bothering you, because this is going to come up time and time again in the scriptures. Uh, You know, was it fair for Joshua to just slaughter the Canaanites, every man, woman, and child? Uh, You know, was it uh, appropriate for God to command Saul to go kill Agag and all of his men? Uh, You know, you'll you'll there will be part of your flesh. That kicks against this, but you got to remind yourself again: I am man; God is not. God defines what's fair and right. I do not. And if this is clearly what God has decreed, uh, I'm not in any position at all to tell God what's right and wrong. Anyway, the dungeon, the livestock, verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night. So evidently, he found out somehow that his child was dead. And I kind of wonder if I wonder if this is one place where, like the movies got it right, that during the night he's sort of testing God. Um, He's got maybe like these nurses or something like that watching his son to see if he dies. Um, and you know because he's so hardened in his sin that he doesn't believe that, uh, th- th- that this is going to happen, even though he's seen all these plagues already. You know, Again, that's a reminder of the way in which you can be so hardened in your sin that you can look at the best evidence possible and say, that's nothing. Uh, you can look at the plague of blood and flies and gnats and frogs and say, oh, that's all nonsense. Nothing bad will ever happen. Um, that's how hard you can be in your sin. But anyway, he sort of put the Lord to the test, is my son going to die? And his son dies. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this would have been not only an attack on Pharaoh and his family, but an attack on the gods of Egypt. Because Pharaoh was viewed as a god, the firstborn son of Pharaoh would have been the next Pharaoh you know, after this Pharaoh died, Uh, but God has just killed the next god of Egypt. Again, showing the way in which the gods of Egypt are nothings. They are dead idols, they are worthless, and the people should trust and rejoice in the Lord Uh, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Back to verse 30. That Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Which is a horrifying thought. Every single household had people dead in it, except for those where the blood had been applied. Uh, Something maybe you might ponder on your own. Did any of the Egyptians apply the blood to their houses? Again, we uh, in the movies have hints of that, but you know we, those are Hollywood productions. We have no idea. Uh, we might need to wait till we get to heaven, but regardless, the death was uh, extensive and far-reaching, and evidently virtually every household had somebody that was dead in it. Verse 31. "Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. That's how urgent it was. I was kind of like, you know, wake him up, get him in here, uh, tell him to get out of my land now. This is so serious. Uh, I am done with you guys. I don't care that it's two in the morning. You get out of here. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Finally, we, uh, Pharaoh's will is broken. You'll remember that up to this point there have been several occasions where Pharaoh tried to do this like negotiated obedience uh, You can go, but don't go, go very far. Come right back. Uh, you can go, but only the men can go, uh, but come right back. You can go, but leave your, uh, your flocks and your herds here and come right back. Finally, Pharaoh's like, alright, that's it. Get out of here. I don't care. Uh, sort of a uh, surrender, but not really because if you know the rest of the story, you know what's coming in the, uh, in the next few verses. We're going to get to that. Um, but uh, this is again sort of the climax of the plagues Uh, finally Pharaoh's will is broken and he says get out of here Now, how should we pray this passage back to God? Uh, I think I want to pick up on a lot of the gospel themes that I mentioned. Uh, You know, so much gospel here. Clearly, uh, this is a type of the work of Jesus, like we talked about before. What is a type? A type is a divinely intended illustration. This is not an illustration that I invented. You know, it's not like I just look at this uh, pink chair here. It's like pink reminds me of blood, and it's kind of like the blood of Jesus. No, no, no. God himself embedded these details here to make it a picture of the gospel, and he did it around 1400 be thee. So think through this. You are uh, deserving of the angel of death slaying you. Because of your rebellion, because you have broken God's laws, the angel of death sooner or later is coming after you. And no righteousness that you have done uh, could save you from that, and no wickedness that you have done can prevent that. But Jesus' blood has been shed, and he offers to take that hyssop and apply it to the doorpost and the lintel of your house, if you'll but ask him for it. Uh, So have you asked him? And and here's what's more. In a way, our age right now, uh, we live like between verse Twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Uh, this entire church age, before Jesus has come again, uh, we're, we're sort of waiting. Is it, 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 are things going to pan out like God has promised? Are those who trust in Jesus going to be saved, and those who don't going to be lost? We're kind of waiting. But eventually Jesus is going to come again. He's going to wrap things up, and then, you know, figuratively speaking, twenty-nine is going to happen. Uh, so, like the Egyptian, or pardon me, like the Israelites, our application is verse twenty-eight. Uh, or no, pardon me, go back, verse twenty-seven, and the people bowed their heads in worship. Uh, We embrace the premises of God by faith. We apply the blood to our hearts by faith. Uh, Now we bow our heads and worship, waiting for that judgment day when God will righteously judge those who have not trusted in him. Uh, Let's pray along these lines, and then we'll we'll be done. Pray with me. God, we praise you so much for this glorious type of Jesus and his work, this long, uh, beautiful illustration of the way in which we are saved, not by any good works we have done, but only by the blood applied to our souls. Uh, we thank you for the way that you give that blood as a totally free gift to all who call upon your name. Please, O oh Lord, work now in our hearts for any within the hearing of my voice who have not yet put their hope in the Lord Jesus. We pray that right now they would flee to him, that you would apply his blood to their lives, and that they would be saved from the angel of death. Lord, give us opportunities throughout the remainder of this week to love our neighbor, to do good, to commend Jesus to others, and gather us uh, next week to study your word again. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day.